Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is actor, screenwriter, and now director Alice Lowe, whom you may know from Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, Beehive, and Horrible Histories, or Hot Fuzz, The World's End, and Paddington. And of course, there's Ben Wheatley's Sightseers, in which she and co-writer Steve Oram wandered through the Peak District, wreaking some very polite havoc. She's bringing her feature debut, Prevenge, to the Toronto International Film Festival on Monday, September 12th, and I've been sitting on this episode since we recorded it at her London flat back in March. Alice chose Labyrinth, or maybe it chose her. David Bowie's death was still hanging over England like a pall when I was there, and she'd live-tweeted a recent TV broadcast of Jim Henson's creepily metaphorical 1985 fairy tale in which Jennifer Connelly plays a slightly too old teenage girl drawn into a world of menacing fantasy by Bowie's capering codpiece Goblin King. And, of course, that led me to begging her to talk about it on an episode of this show. Alice was not only up for it, but wonderfully thoughtful and insightful, bringing both the perspective of an Englishwoman who grew up with Bowie and the Muppets as Constance, and the emotional range of a very perceptive artist. I'm really happy we got to talk, and if you listen carefully, or not so carefully, you'll hear a cameo appearance from one of her Prevenge co-stars in the background. This is someone else's movie. I was tempted to pick a film that would make me seem very um, clever in an obscure way and I was thinking what's the most obscure interesting film that I could pick um, and I'd already sort of live tweeted Labyrinth um, which is how I decided that I had to have that yeah I was exactly. really hoping you'd pick it yeah, so I you never saying, influenced you, I never pushed but it was just like yeah you were like do you fancy maybe doing Labyrinth and, and I was like oh well, I should choose something a lot more grown up and um, pretentious than that <laughs> and then I thought you know what the hell I also think because of in the light of recent events which is sure. why they were showing Labyrinth on TV in the first place um, I kind of thought oh it's really timely um but also, you know, you shouldn't be sort of ashamed of your early influences, I think. Like, as I said, I think it's sort of part of my creative DNA. I can't get away from that film. I actually think it's hugely underrated as well in terms of the script and the structure and the really unusual content of that film, you know. Yeah. Um, the female character, I think, is really interesting and really unusual. Um, Company of Wolves is another of my really favourite films uh-huh. from childhood and I think it, there was something in that film that as a, as a young girl I knew there was something slightly dangerous about it I don't know if it would get made now because people would be like you can't have a 17 year old girl having a relationship with a man in his 40s and seeming to be condoning that in a kid's film but I actually think that was one of the things that made it so powerful and interesting and and about that threshold of of becoming a woman and, and adulthood and, and what's so terrifying about it. Yeah. I, I hadn't seen it in, I would say, 20 years, maybe mm. yeah, 15, but it's really? been a long time. I think the first time it was released on DVD was the last time I had seen it, and then I watched it again for this, and it's, yeah, it's <laughs> much more adult than I remember. Mm, yeah. It's also much less, it is structured, but it's less structured than I remember. Right, yeah. Uh, I remember, I, I put it together in my head as a much faster paced film and it really mm. does wander around that labyrinth yeah. an awful lot. And, and, and once it's the Battle of the Stones, 
I lose interest every yeah. time. I sort of like, I'll put the kettle on during this bit and come back <laughs> for the ending, you know, with the amazing Escher stuff. But yeah, yeah. I, you know, uh, it's it's sort of got a horror structure to it, really. Mm. Sort of slightly Hellraiser, you know, someone, a young girl kind of um, wishing for something she shouldn't shouldn't do and opening a pandora's box really and being forced to do it which is the other thing too it's not that i didn't want this i want to leave yeah but she i mean the whole point of labyrinth is that she is given repeatedly in the first 10 minutes she's given the opportunity to not do this thing yeah um so what you're dealing with is uh a very strange bargain where jareth the goblin king offers to take her memories of her brother away. Mm. And presumably, and as we see from all the other goblins, this happens all the time. Yeah. Um, and and it's a really strange... Now, I mean, the resonances are, are just even more disturbing because mm. I'm sitting there thinking he's basically offering to roofie her. No, <laughs> it's consensual, so that's not it. But then later there's another thing where the, the, the female lead, who is a child really, mm. or has to be just enough of a child that we can believe this whole thing. You know, if, if yeah. she was a little older, it wouldn't work. If she was a little younger, it would be too terrifying. Yeah. Uh, and Connolly, who, you know, famously went through puberty during the film because mm. her costumes change and the shape of her face changes. Mm. You actually see her grow up mm. and then get younger again because they shot out of sequence. <laughs> it, it's, it's a really weird place to have that decision put on that character mm. because now suddenly we're watching... You know, she was she was this frivolous teenager jumping around, mm. and now suddenly she has to decide whether or not to give up a baby. And mm. there, the metaphor there is weird, yeah. and the the allegorical aspects of it it just gets stranger and more complicated. Yeah, it's a very unusual sort of fairy tale in that respect. Um, but for me, I mean, I I watched that beginning bit. And I said this on Twitter as well. And I just go, that was me. Mm-hmm. And it represented me like this nerdy girl. I was sort of obsessed with pre-Raphaelite pictures and paintings. And um, and I uh, also Anne of Green Gables is okay. like a, a sort of thing, that, a character that I loved at that age because she was pretentious. I actually think it's brilliant comedy, Anne of Green Gables. She's a brilliant comic character and she's not often seen as such. She's no, very, very seen as being a bit twee and whatever. But I loved it at the time. Um, and it was this this sort of pathos of, of kind of trying to achieve your dreams and the reality is a lot more boring and banal. And I think my comedy and my sort of comic instincts revolve around that kind of dichotomy a lot about someone who has dreams but they keep being thwarted. by their own pathetic failure basically so to me that was that was the that's what she's dealing with at the beginning of the film and then the fact that someone is offering her her dreams to be realized and to be successful um but it's sort of a dangerous offer Mm -hmm. um I think that's really fascinating because I think the background, when I watch it now, I sort of think, okay, but what else does she have to do? Like, yeah. well, does, that party's not going <laughs> to last forever. Is she Someone's just going to be home. in a bubble wearing a dress, sort of dancing with lots of masks? Or does she actually have to, like, pay him some sexual favours? Mm. I think she probably does I have to. Applied. I think that's a given. Um, and then you go, that is really dark. But that is the the... The the decision that you're offered as a teenage girl, and, you know, there's so much sort of 
debate about this at the moment, you know, with the age of consent and all of this. This is really dark what we're going into now. But, you know, in the newspaper that in the UK, there's a footballer who's going to prison I because, just saw something about that, you yeah. know, he had a relationship with a 15-year-old girl. And as a, as a 15-year-old girl, what, what you understand to mean about sex is is nothing you don't understand it and that's the whole little red riding hood thing is there can be a very attractive proposition to you that you think someone's really interested in you and that they are in love with you but you don't understand what the dark side of that is you don't understand what bargain you're entering into and i think there's an inherent understanding of that as a child when you watch labyrinth you know that this figure is dangerous but you don't quite know why. You don't quite know what is going to happen to this character. You just know that she shouldn't do it. Yeah. But there is an attraction there as well. And I think that sort of, sort of encapsulates something really interesting that is very, very difficult to um, translate in a narrative without it seeming like you're condoning, yeah. <laughs> you know, underage sex or whatever. Mm. Or goblin sex. Underage yeah, goblin go- sex. Go- I mean, underage, yeah. Keep it fantastical, I think we're safe. Yeah, yeah. But it, Goblins. But, yeah, but I would love... Goblin cod pieces. <laughs> well, that's what I was about to say, because the, the film does not let you... I mean, there's a key light. There's lighting mm. choices that pre- that present <laughs> Bowie's costume <laughs> in certain know. ways. I would love it's to get somebody like, it? you know, Todd Haynes to do a semiotic reading of it and actually mm. explain what each image means in yeah. contrast. Because when you get to the... I mean, you, you introduce Bowie as this stately, regal, almost unemotional figure. His mm-hmm. line readings, I, I have not remembered how He's flat they are. He's kind of a are. male ice queen, isn't he? Yeah. He's like the snow queen or something like that. A little Tilda Swinton-y, yeah. yeah. And how, how intentional that is, because it's not, you know, he was, was not a bad actor. There's mm. no way he's not doing this on purpose. Yeah. And, you know, just his initial, hello, Sarah, <laughs> almost mechanical. It's, yeah. an, it's a really strange choice. And yeah. then he becomes warmer. But yes, not, you, know, you start to feel sorry for him as yeah. the time goes on, which just made me fall in love with him even more. I mean, it's got a lot to answer for that film in terms <laughs> of like women choosing their, you know, people that they choose to fall in love with. I've got a friend who wrote a very interesting book about female heroines and and how things like Wuthering Heights really screw you up in terms of you know, people search for Heathcliff. Sure, yeah. <laughs> when they should be going nowhere near Heathcliff. Yeah, the beautifully broken man. Yeah, exactly. And that is the Jareth sort of archetype, isn't it? That you, you know, you see a glimmer of humanity and you think, oh, I could save him. I could change yeah. him. <laughs> He'd be a really nice goblin king if I, if I got my hands on him. Yeah. <laughs> it's all depressing in, in those terms. It is remarkable, though. I mean, you, you have a character who is the villain. Mm who is an interesting villain. Mm. I mean, traditionally, that's what makes na- letter- narrative and literature, that what's, that's what makes stories interesting, when yeah. the villain is also intriguing. Yeah. But by casting Bowie and by having him sing constantly in you know non-diegetic terms, those songs aren't being performed for the most part yeah, by I've the never, characters. I've never thought about that, that Sarah never sings a song. It's just mm-hmm. him singing. That is really strange, isn't it? For a musical, yeah. you're essentially going, well, we've cast Bowie as the lead, so... Should we just put some songs in it? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that was what their decision I just, was. I assume the studio said, you know, you have him, you make him sing. <laughs> put him in. <laughs> make his, him he's work. willing to work with you, you do it. And, <laughs> and the screenplay is by Terry Jones, who mm. I always forget that. I, I met him last year, and it's just one oh, of those really? things where it just goes right through your head. It's like, well, oh, apparently yeah, he he's, he's not that sort of proud of that work. And I, I just think if I met him, I would sort of say to him, you know, that really had an impact on me, that film, in a, in a positive way. There's no way that 
loads of people don't think that that's an incredible piece of work, you know, mm. in, and lots of people have been influenced by it. But, I, you know, I think it's something interesting. I think it must be connected to the Henson sort of legacy that they were creatively allowed to just get on with what they wanted to do. Mm. And I suppose once you've got Bowie in the mix, you've got Terry Jones in the mix, that whoever was producing it just went, do whatever you want. And, and, and also I think Henson had a very sort of interesting approach to childhood and a non-infantilising yeah. of childhood. You know, um, it's kind of this 70s ethos of, you know, maybe let those things that are slightly scary and dangerous and weird, just let them exist because that's what childhood is. And so many children's films now get rid of any element of danger or fear. And I, I think it's really interesting because, you know, we had a midwife come around. I've got a two-month-old baby who may make an appearance um, audially at any point. Um, but, you know, we had a midwife come round and look at our flat and she was like, oh, that's a scary picture because we've got loads of horror posters mm. everywhere on our flat. And, and I was like, oh, am I a terrible mother? Should I be putting all these horror pictures away? But then I actually thought, no, that's, you know, that that's our environment, that's us. You know, yeah. the child's going to grow up with us as parents. And... You're going to have a cool kid because she won't be afraid of the monsters. Yeah, or even if she is, that's part of growing up. You know, a lot of these films terrified me. The Dark Crystal Mm -hmm. absolutely terrified me when those Skeksis did their weird noises and when the Emperor died. I'm a massive Henson fan, by the way. Yes. Um, You know, I was sort of hiding behind my hands in the cinema. Um, But I think that's good for you. I mean, you're not actually going to die. It, you know, that's the next best thing is is being exposed to things that frighten you that aren't actually a threat. Yeah. Surely yeah. that's how you learn about fear in the, in the best possible way rather than it being from a real threat in your, your own environment. Yeah, I mean, it's much more therapeutic to have the catharsis of a horror film or even just a, an action movie, something that, that gets your pulse racing and then brings it down again mm. than it is to escape a monster. Mm. Like a, to encounter something awful in real life is yeah. actually genuinely traumatic yeah um labyrinth i don't know if it has anything truly traumatic for kids and the dark crystal is definitely a harder film Mm. um, in terms of its fantasy world and its and its violence Mm. but labyrinth i think will just make you question the funny feelings that you get from things happening Mm. in the movie which is so which is almost better and almost worse at the same time there's so much going on in it subtextually that that yeah, a 10-year-old would be shaped in different directions, bounce back and forth like a pinball yeah. during the film. Yeah. I think, actually, the bit that disturbed me most was almost the dream sequence. I was kind of going, this is like Eyes Wide Shut or something. It like- really is. <laughs> that was what I thought, too, watching it. And, and I think when you had said that, you know, like the film seems to acknowledge the darker bargain, mm. um, those masks are grotesquers. Yes. They're really unpleasant. And the fact that you know that um, the people look beautiful because they're wearing their gowns and they look like they may be beautiful under the masks, mm. you know that they are actually the goblins, but in human form. And that's more creepy than anything, in a yeah. way. And that, and also, it's like a, it's a, it's a trip. She's on a kind of trip, oh, really. Yeah. Um, she's peach just trip. eaten this weird peach that's, you know, been laced with something. So all of that stuff suddenly, as an adult, seemed really strange. Whereas as a, as a child, I was just entranced by that. I was kind of like, oh, I love this bit with the bubble. And you know, part of me does go, 
and a lot of people were saying this on Twitter as well, like, take the bargain, <laughs> just take the bargain. <laughs> you've got bubbles, you've got really nice dress, you've got Bowie, yeah. you've got a massive castle. What is the problem? I mean, you're basically the Kim Kardashian yeah. of the 80s. Yes. <laughs> just enjoy it. Just enjoy the wealth that being a goblin queen will bring you. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so part of me watching it, I'm like, yeah, go for it. But but underneath it all is the bog of eternal stench. Yes, and that's true. I think that's true. really quite telling. That it's directly under them all the time. Yeah, and the whole place probably does stink. And does does Bowie even look like that in real life? He might be using some sort of magic. That's true. To make him look the way he does. Mm-hmm. You don't know what the codpiece contains. It yes. might be... <laughs> More goblin. Yeah. Way more goblin. Now, <laughs> Just now a I've goblin taken, face. I've taken it it might be later. another face. <laughs> yeah. I think I've seen that movie. Um, but this, and this is the thing, too, that we haven't pointed out yet, which is that Jennifer Connelly, after the initial prologue, Jennifer Connelly and David Bowie are the only human beings. Mm. Everything else is a Henson puppet and a particularly gooey, slimy, warty... Mm. Um, Unpleasant looking Brian yeah. Froud design. They're yes. all they're all very warty. <laughs> well, this this is what I wonder about the uh, the cod piece as well because in our days of CGI and this is like a, a debate that constantly rages and uh, you know is there as much artistry with CGI mm. and I think that the cod piece survived because you had an artist designing everything so everything had that bespoke crazy you know look yeah. to it that esoteric design that Arthur Rackham kind of um, look to it which I absolutely love but you don't get films like that anymore I mean I I quite enjoyed uh, Maleficent oh yeah um, just because I was like oh someone's trying to make a kind of you know dark fairy tale film and you know I I love legend I love you know as I said Dark Crystal Um, but I didn't think the creatures were up to scratch they were all sort of CGI'd and they didn't seem to belong to the same world as Angelina Jolie's costumes yeah. and stuff. It's strange. There is a tactility that's been sacrificed, I think. I mean, very mm. quickly sacrificed. You saw, well, Mad Max just won the costume design Oscar yeah. last week, and yeah. it's all handmade, all repurposed. Yeah. Um, and the, all the effects as well, yeah. you know. And there's a, there is a, a love of texture in mm. that film that you really do want to just reach out and join that world, even though it's horrible and everyone's dying of, yeah. of radiation poisoning. It's just beautiful and glorious. Mm. And, and Miller came through a Toronto on a, on the press tour, and, and he'd said that, you know, everything. The rule was that there could be no a there could be no new stuff, mm. and b everything had to have two purposes. Everything had to have been repurposed from what it was originally wow. as they rebuilt the world. So, yeah. Max's mask at the beginning is a garden sp- a trowel, yeah. just been hammered together with two wow. other things. And I mean, the it's whole amazing. Like it, uh, she so deserved the Oscar, Jenny Bevan. Like, oh, yeah. just incredible the artistry and I just I found it so exhilarating to watch that film uh, you know and it was like a visual treat like on the screen part you know I was like we have to go and see it again because yeah. there are bits of the screen that I wasn't looking at and yes. I want to look at next time yeah. and yeah it is it is similar in that way of like you can re-watch Labyrinth or you can re-watch The Dark Crystal and there'll be things in it that you didn't see before and Things that will have surprised them as they were making it as well. That's the thing about ha- having everything in camera is mm-hmm. you go, oh, I didn't know that was, I didn't know what the physics of that puppet was going to be. I didn't know it was going to move like that. I didn't know it was going to look like that. I didn't know that thing was going to do that when it 
smiled, you know. Yeah. Well, I think of Ludo's gum line, which is so weirdly detailed, which I had never (laughs) noticed before, but they're really, they put that in there. They gave him an underbite and some kind of an upper plate thing going on. Yeah. Yeah, and as a child, you just go, well, it's real. Yeah. And I remember, I, you know, I so wanted more Labyrinth. I didn't want the film to finish every Mm. time I watched it. I think that's a a mark of a, a, a brilliant film when you just want it to have a different ending. You want you know her to stay in the labyrinth Uh, and every time you're watching it it's because you want to get back into that world and I just wanted more I wanted more labyrinth so I watched like the making of documentary thinking like many children thought I want to work for Jim Henson I want to be part of the Jim Henson workshop and I remember watching it and it's sort of distressing me because I was like they're not real (laughs) the puppets aren't real they're showing how they're made they're made out of like wires and you know, airbags and stuff like that. And I was like, no, no, I, I couldn't ever work for them because yeah, the magic wouldn't that, be real. Yeah, you don't want that illusion shattered. The, um, I have, uh, <laughs> I have interviewed Kermit twice. Really? Yeah. Once oh, on the I'm phone, jealous. which is the most surreal thing I've ever done. Wow. Uh, and it was after Henson's death, unfortunately, it was Steve Whitmire doing the work. Who's, mm. who's a puppeteer, but not a voice in, in, labyrinth as it turned out the voices right. were supplied by different people yeah. than, the, than the muppet puppeteers oh, that's interesting. i didn't realize that until this time around mm. um but yeah interviewing kermit on the phone is just you know if you're lucky he's in a hotel room and he's maybe making hand motions but i bet they do because they seem to so. go into it so holistically yeah. like they it's like being possessed or something they take it so seriously yeah. don't they the really respecting the 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 creations and the and the characters yeah. it's like the, Amazing. The problem is you can never talk to them about it because they won't break character. You can't hey. talk to Whitmire. I said at wow. one point, it's like, could I talk to him? Yeah. Not while I'm not on the phone with Kermit. I'd like to talk to Steve. Put put Steve on the phone. But um, He's like, who's Steve? That's yeah. a figment of no, imagination. That's, that's not real at all. He doesn't, he doesn't exist. Yeah. It was, but, but the second time, it was a press conference for the, the new Jason Segel Muppets film. Yeah. They brought Kermit in and Whitmire, but they brought the box in with the puppet, and he popped up from behind the table and... The 40 people, the, the journalists arranged in this hotel ballroom just instantly became six. You don't question it for <laughs> a second. Mm. And he, I don't know, I still don't know how he does this, but he makes eye contact with the person who's asking him a question when he's answering. Mm. And I have no idea how. There are no cameras I'm underneath. There's no way he can tell. Just he knows where the voice comes from. Maybe, just like but they the locked on. And it was incredible. I mean, I asked a question, a couple of other people did, and... and you're talking to Kermit the Frog. It doesn't matter that you know. It doesn't matter that, It, it you know. reminds me of something I watched about E.T. and that Drew, Drew Barrymore really believed that E.T. was real. Sure. Well, what was she, and three? She... The actress who... I, I can't remember her name, but the actress who played the mother who's in the howling. Oh, Dee Wallace. Yes. She was saying that, you know, the the puppet had a soul. She was saying, you know, the creature, the, there was something eerie about it that it you felt like it really was alive and it did have its own soul. Mm-hmm. And... I think that there's something really powerful about that, like almost frighteningly powerful. It's like animism or something yeah. that some sort of spirit enters that that bit of cloth and yeah. and brings it to life. And it's the Velveteen Rabbit, isn't it? Like if you love it enough, it'll be alive. Yeah. that's what you want for it. Yeah, and as a child, that you you really believe in that. You believe that your toys do have a soul and have a spirit, and you know that's why puppets are so powerful for children mm-hmm. um, because you believe that your teddy is real anyway and the idea of someone you know destroying your teddy is like actual murder yeah there's an amazing um comedian called nina conti i don't know if you would know about her but 
she um, she's a ventriloquist. Oh, okay. And I remember seeing her doing an act, and uh, her puppet is very funny because he's like her subconscious, and he just tells her everything she's getting wrong. And um, there was this act that she did where she actually said, oh, I'm going, going to take your clothes off or something or take your skin off. And, and then she was starting to talk as the monkey but without the puppet. Okay. And she suddenly just stopped and she said, I feel really strange, I can't go on. And she nearly passed out because yeah. she said she felt so sick, the puppet not being on her hand but still enacting the puppet. And that, that puppet is very real to her. Like okay. there is something very powerful I think it's like you're pulling out parts of your own psyche and, and giving them, it, you know, it's, it's, I suppose it's a bit like Northern Lights, you know, Philip Pullman, it's like a part of your soul that you're yeah. wearing outside of yourself. Mm-hmm. And that is very vulnerable. And psychologically, what that does to you is quite scary and powerful, I think. Yeah, There's I've, some sort of voodoo going on there, I'm sure. I've never understood the... The alchemy, I suppose, of characters who can... And you've, you've played the same character over and over again mm. in, in different situations. And I, it's fascinating, but yeah, at some point there must be a transference where mm. you're, you've got this person in your head and mm. you can find the person and lose the person. But after a while, especially with something that's um, a physical encumbrance, mm-hmm. yeah, it would be weird to do it differently, to change anything. Yeah, or for someone to say, it's not real you're killing off that potential within yourself to to carry on doing that act or yeah I mean I suppose acting I've never really sort of done method acting but there is something strange that happens when you take on a certain role and and play it for quite a long time you do take on a little piece of that person or or that that side of you becomes enhanced in 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 your life I think like even watching the edit of the film that I'm making at the moment find myself using lines from the film in real life okay. it's really strange it's like why am i saying a film, line from the film that's really weird it's it sort of inhabits you yeah. and i use it is a bit demonic it's like you have to purge yourself of it afterwards and kind of go get ye gone <laughs> next character or next film or whatever um but it takes a while is there a ritual i mean is there a, is there a way that you <laughs> shake stuff off yeah no, really. Probably just having another job and and having to move on to that to that thing, I suppose, mm. and just having to clear out your head a little bit. But you know, there are comedy characters that I come back to. But I I kind of think most characters that I play are parts of myself, anyway. So they're all there. They're mm. all. It's like the puppets at the end of Labyrinth. They're all still there. Yeah. Should I need them? It's just that you have to put them away. Yeah. And <laughs> every you don't, so often. Yeah. And I imagine it's not as. Uh, attempting to to dive back into their embrace which is a really weird kind of fugue state ending for the film mm. I, I i had forgotten that's how it ends but it it feels like the kind of thing that henson would love mm. rather than sarah would love mm. like he's he loves these things he's built and yeah. so much and and now you get to lose yourself in them and all i can think of is are your parents downstairs what does, <laughs> what does this it's a very mean? muppets show ending isn't yeah. it it's like all the crazy characters and you're like what even the fireys they were a nightmare yeah. you don't want them back i had forgotten <laughs> quite how bizarre and, and completely unprovoked that sequence is that there are yeah. these just these there are these puppet birds who are man-sized and want to pull your head off yeah, and what about you? I mean, I was talking about how spurious I find that ending because as a child, 
I, you know, you understand it's all about leaving childhood behind and becoming an adult and becoming sensible and leaving behind your toys and imagination and nostalgia. And to me, that was incredibly sad as a child to watch that. I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to put my toys away yet. Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't want her to, I don't want the film to end. I don't want the characters to go away. I, and, and her putting all her stuff away was really sad but at the same time I knew that was the ending I was kind of accepting of it you know that's sad but it's reality that's what growing up is about and then when they sort of pop up and go do you want us to come back and she goes oh yeah go on then I was a bit like (laughs) no no that's not real it's a bit like someone telling you that Father Christmas isn't real and then going but he is really and you're just like yeah right yeah right come on he's not yeah but you can't you can't reverse that. I think if, if you've, you know, you've earned that journey. That's the whole point. Like yes. she, has, she has matured and she's yes. discovered things and learned and uh, So I wonder it. it was a bit of a studio or Muppets show. Like, that's not, we can't kill any of the creatures. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got to get them back in, in in some way when really it doesn't really completely make sense yeah. for the character or for the story or for the character arc. But, you know, when I was watching it on TV recently... Um, I did feel really, really sad, and I was rela- relating it to Bowie's death, really, and it of kind of gave me a sort of perspective on kind of, kind of catharsis about my sadness about Bowie having died, because everybody, you know, has has their own way that they relate to his music and his work and his death, actually. Um, but it kind of made me realise, you know, he embodied some sort of part of my childhood, but also that I actually did think he was like a fantasy figure I think he'd played so many aliens and creatures and the Goblin King and you know that I in part, some part of my head thought he was immortal like Father Christmas and it was him sort of going away it did feel like we're all children going no we want you to come back yeah. we, we don't want you to go away and it's the end of that film is that it's it's a goodbye to childhood and, and growing up and I, I sort of it sort of helped me to understand why it was so sad for me, you know, um, apart from, you know, everything that I've been influenced by him and his work and like so many people have, but but it also made me realise why that film would have that power over me to make me feel so sad about it again, but in, in a nice way, in a good way. Yeah, well, I mean, Jareth, as, as does everyone else, as you say, Jareth survives, but mm. no one is... No one has changed or harmed over the course of the film, which is really interesting, except for Sarah, who grows up. Mm. And you've got just a sad owl Yeah, he turns into an owl. It's very classical, that ending. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, there's something, you know, in Ovid, I I actually studied classics, and every now and then I'll dig out an old bit of fact that I have about classics, because I generally don't remember anything (laughs) about my degree. But, uh, you know, it's the sort of thing that would happen in the metamorphoses, that someone would be turned into an animal. Mm-hmm. And that would kind of be their punishment because it takes their voice away, you know. Yeah. And it also means that they don't have memory. It's it's quite an interesting thing that they they only have a very vague memory of who they were. So they're like a ghost, really, which is like a very tragic form to be in. So, for example, if someone got turned into a bird, they'd only be able to say one word, which was connected to who they were when they were human. But right. they're a dumb animal now. They don't really understand have any understanding of themselves. So I think there's kind of all of that tied up in it as well, that you kind of go, okay, he's an owl and he can fly wherever he likes, but at the same time, he can't 
ever be part of the human world and he can't interact and oh it's just very sad yeah. it's a very sort of like his I suppose he's voiceless as well he's, he can't speak and can't sing dreadful yeah but then he's, uh, he's, but then we get the the non-Jareth Bowie over the end credits and it makes it okay even though the song is sort of a panicked sort song sort of happy sort of happy song even though the lyrics are kind of dark yeah. but um yeah, again, it's a very sort of, when you dig into it, it's a much darker ending than you remember from childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and lots of ambiguity to it, I think, because part of me goes, oh, it's a bit like the ending of Brazil. Like, there's a happy ending, but you know it's not the real yeah. happy ending. There's an alternative, which is the harsh reality. And depending on what sort of person you are, you can choose one or the other if you're an optimist you can go oh no that is the actual ending if you're a pessimist you're like no this is not real this is bollocks yeah. <laughs> and to, and those came out in the same window of time too mm, and both yes. produced by the Terrys and created yeah. by Python uh, veterans it is like it's the 80s here especially in, in British cinema were such a weird you know uh, fertilized place, mm. not fertile, but fertilized. That mm. things had already happened, and it was we were seeing it. Ha- we were seeing mm. the results, and it's just this bizarre and studio production. Where, as yeah, well, like and the meaning of life. You mm. know, those those key sequences there, where they completely created. It's it's running through it, and I get why Mike Lee and Ken Loach rose up in Counterpoint and at mm. that point. Like, Loach was making things like Hidden Agenda, and Lee was doing. Um, Life is sweet, right after mm. this this period of time, yeah. almost as a sort of a snapping back against the fantasy. Yeah. But Henson coming here and working, it's like he infected a lot of people. Yeah. And and pulled them into his world and he, his his directorial. Nobody talks about direct. Uh, nobody talks about Jim Henson as a director, as a director because you just yeah. don't think about it. Yes. But what he did with this and what he did with the Dark Crystal and to a lesser extent even with the Muppet films that he was. Sort of, I don't think he ever directed anything, but he produced them very closely. And he was making this strange utopian world for himself mm. in the workshop where you could make anything. And it, yeah. it's the disregard for mainstream narrative, you know, uh, plotting and, and mm. just grounding everything in, in character and fascination. Yeah. Labyrinth really does feel like the peak of that, where it just, it all just kind of fomented and then exploded in this mm. bizarre I'm doing exactly what I want and it doesn't yeah, matter if no one else gets it an artisanal approach I sure. suppose and, and the idea that anyone who was a technician or artist could could go to that studio and their imagination would be unleashed as mm-hmm. you said fertilised that some, some somehow there was gra- fertile ground to be able to yeah. unleash your imagination and, and someone would pay you to do that as well I mean it is incredible and that's very much the the stuff of my childhood that really inspired me. And it's weird because, you know, Sightseers, there's so much... It's much more about realism. And, and a lot of the comedy that I've done is about naturalism and realism and is building on that kind of Ken Loach, Mike Lee tradition. Mm-hmm. But there is also that counterpoint of fantasy and surrealism that I'm really, really interested in. And that, as I said, that a lot of the stuff that I write is about someone who aspires to the fantasy, but they can't have it. Right. Um, so the pendulum swings back. Yeah, exactly. And in it, I think it is about those tensions. And it seems a very British thing. You've got Britishness on the one hand, which can be this very creative creative beauty and detail and arts and crafts and Bowie and all, all of this creativity and lush creativity. 
And then on the other hand, you've got grimy council estates and very grey weather and uh, <laughs> some quite ugly housing. And, you, you know, you have got the, that sort of weird schizophrenia about the British identity, I think. Yeah. Well, you can understand why you would escape into mm. fantasy and what the appeal of it is. Mm. Um, especially when, well, I was going to say when there's the threat of a darker world in the real world waiting for you, but Sarah's home is actually pretty nice. She's mm. she's clearly taken care of. Her parents, um, her, her parental situation might be a little fraught, but she's a teenager and that's what happens. Mm. You know, like there's, we can't really be sure where the tensions are yeah. coming from. Although the parents are quite funny. I mean, I don't, not to slate them, but they're kind of weird cardboard acting that they're mm. doing of like, well, you come back here, Sarah. It's all It's all kind of like... Yeah, she sees me as a wicked stepmother. Yes, but no matter what I do, I always remember, I, I just know so many lines off my heart. <laughs> but you know, you don't entirely believe that her they're her parents because you're like, why is she so creative? Mm. And I suppose that's something that's quite interesting is that her mother is obviously the creative one. I think it's said during the film that her mother is an actress, so it's obviously the mother that has infected her with this sort of crazy creativity. And and then her mum and, and her stepmom and dad are just like the norm the normal squares, people. Yeah. They're the squares that are kind of which also makes you much more on Jareth's side, I think, as well, because you're kind of like, yeah, but she's really creative, and it's really fine that she goes and you know recites poetry in the woods. Why shouldn't she? You know, yeah. why are they trying to stop her doing that? Why are they making her babysit? I mean, part of you goes, well, they've got a point. She's got a point. You know why? Why should she have to look after her brother? Why can't they get babysitter? Yeah. Um, she has that line about how you know when, when she's arguing with her stepmother about how you never ask what I want, and the stepmother says well, you never do anything, mm, and that seemed really it's harsh. Yeah, <laughs> it's quite harsh. but also weirdly real. Like mm. in a, in a in a, it's a character beat, but it also yeah, she's a weird bookish girl who mm. runs around reciting like she doesn't they, know she's pretty. They don't yet. understand her inner world, which. It's quite tragic, really, that she's this really creative girl and, and they don't understand that. And you kind of go, she could be doing worse stuff. Mm-hmm. She could be going to the park, shooting up yeah. and having sex with someone on a climbing frame. And she's not doing <laughs> that. She's just going there wearing a funny medieval dress and reciting poetry. You're sort of going, they're really getting on her case and she could be a lot worse. Yeah. I mean... Five years you know, later, she'd be a goth. Yeah, well, five years later, she's in bloody Requiem for a Dream. That's true. <laughs> oh, no, few, few, no, that good train, few years That train's later. a little ways down. Yeah. But yeah, no, that's but, you true. Know, that's she definitely... could be in a lot worse situation. Um, and Connolly herself had just worked with Argento, so yeah, you know, yeah. she's already seen things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You're kind of going, there's a lot worse things that she could be getting into, and they're really having a go at her. So I think I sort of identify with that as well. It's that kind of Harry Potter thing. Oh. <laughs> you joining in? Yeah. Well, Harry so Potter, big with kids. <laughs> sound effects courtesy of my little two-month-old. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's funny. When you mentioned Harry Potter, I remembered that I think this is the first time you hear the word Hogwart. It's uh, I, I, unless it's unless there's an origin of it that I don't know. Oh, it's certainly the first time I was aware of it. J.K. Rowling should be asked to see yes. if she watches it. I mean, I will be tweeting at her constantly. Sometimes she ran, sometimes she responds randomly to people. I think it's worth a shot. <laughs> yeah, worth a try. I remember I wanted to do a sketch about. I mean, I've played Bowie a few times in a few different comedy things now, 
Um, and I remember I wanted to do a series of sketches for Channel 4 and they were sort of saying, this is about 10 years ago, and they were, they were sort of saying, oh, we're not sure that Labyrinth... I wanted to play Jareth. Okay. And they were like, we're not sure it's famous enough, we're not sure it's mainstream <laughs> enough. And I sort of had to go off and research the idea of, like, how, how many people have actually seen this film? And the more research I did about it, the more I realised that actually it was one of the few children's films made at that time at a time when there was a real lack of children's films. Yeah, things were tilting in the other direction. Disney was getting darker and they, their animation department hadn't really done... For, I think The Black yeah. Cauldron was the only thing they put out and really? it almost bankrupted them at the time. Mm. Um, also, the you know, one. VHS sort of, you know, I think rentals were at their peak. So even though it didn't do that well in the cinema... Oh, it never it, went away. It was yeah. huge as a, you know, as a... Ooh. Oh, dear. Um, you know, it was huge as a rental thing. Well, we were talking about the absence of human performance and, and the fact that you really only have two people to hook onto, and, and one of them, uh, Jareth, is only in it in fits and starts. It's really one character's journey, and Jennifer Connelly is carrying this entire movie because, mm. of course, she's also acting against, you know, latex and felt, mm. which is harder well, than it looks. She does amazingly, and she's such a great actress. You can see how she survived the curse of being a child star yeah, yeah. into into being a very successful adult actress because she is brilliant and you can dress, estimate that as well she'd been slightly annoying the whole film would not have worked yeah. whatsoever or stiff and unconvincing against puppets i mean not everyone can do that but uh, you know she's she's worked with in her teens she's worked with Argento and Henson basically back to back which is such a weird starting point it's like you know Natalie Portman working with Luc Besson and then just launching into everybody else <laughs> there aren't many actors who get to do that um, you know uh, Sarah Polly working with, with Gilliam in mm. Baron Munchausen is the kind of thing where the, the casting is so it's so fraught if you mm. get it wrong your movie doesn't work mm. so you have to know you have to have absolute faith and then you have to treat this child like a person mm. with and get the performance you want rather than you know you can't raise your voice you can't yell it uh, Sarah said once that um, uh, in, a, in a conversation with, with Cameron Bailey at TIFF she said that the thing that Gilliam taught her was that she could listen and respond mm. that she didn't simply have to say her lines and wait and say her line. Mm. She could actually interact. And she was just, like, I think, seven. Yeah, um, it's quite a huge acting that some people don't learn that throughout their whole acting yeah, career. Yeah, and Connolly has it too. Like Connolly is actually processing stuff mm. that the puppets are saying to her, yeah. which is kind of incredible. Well, also, it's a very interesting... If she hadn't got maturity... She could well have turned up on that set going, oh, these puppets are actually awful. Yeah. I don't like them. I'm, they're too babyish for me. But the, the success of the film rests on her absolutely understanding the story and believing heart and soul in this, in, in what's at stake, basically. Yeah, I really, yeah. I'd love to talk to her about it because I wonder what that experience was like for her. I, I feel like she totally understood the story and maybe even identified with the character of of having to of loving fantasy it's sort it's sort of interesting um metaphor for acting really of sure, like yeah. being in love with a fantasy world and wanting to be part of it but it's it's a poison chalice yeah. to a certain extent um you know because I, I always say like when people say why why do you want to be an actress and people 
especially when I say oh, I'm, I'm not bothered about fame and stuff like that and people quite often are very sceptical about that they're like of course you want to be famous if you've done this and I, I quite genuinely often say I I believed in magic when I was a kid and I just wanted to be part of the magic yeah and you know when, I suppose watching something like Labyrinth I was like I want to live in that world I want to live in the fantasy world and if fantasy doesn't exist well the next best thing is being an actor where you could be on stage and pretending that magic is real or pretending that that fantasy does exist. Yeah, it's actually, that's a theory I've, ha- I've had for a very long time is that there are two kinds of people who are drawn to acting. One is, I want to be there. I want to be part of that. That looks like fun. Mm. And then it turns into, I can't imagine not doing this because it's just so much more fun than regular life. Mm. And the other personality is someone who you know, just desperately wants to not be themselves, mm. uh, And so finds out that you can be other people and, mm. that we're, and that they have a talent for it. And there's that weird divide of, of actors who, I mean, I've, I've interviewed dozens of people who have taken this absolutely seriously, but still find it pleasurable and fun and, and engage themselves with the process and working with people. And then there's a handful of people who are just, you know, they would be sociopaths if mm. they couldn't do this. <laughs> They need the release. Yeah, exactly. I think there's some directors that like that as well. <laughs> I think there's some sort of Chinese proverb, and I don't know who it's attributed to, but it's like they said there's two types of actors. There's there's one actor that you you see them on stage and they're they're pointing at the moon and, and you say, look at that fabulous actor, how amazing they are at pointing at the moon. Mm-hmm. And the other sort of actor, you just go, wow, look at the moon. Yeah. And and I'd rather be that second type of actor that just, you know, it's what you were saying about Sarah Polly and, you know, and Jennifer Connolly, that when an actor is just responding to the other person, then that is somehow much more real. And uh, Well, you believe the puppets are real. You yeah. believe their characters rather than, you know, armatures and latex and, and remote control faces and all that other stuff. Yeah, you just forget that they're not real. You absolutely believe that they are that they're characters and that, yeah that's the thing that when, you know when we're talking about what what, what to talk about in the film you, I was like there, there are only two actors I'd actually forgotten about that I was like, no surely there must be some more you know Hoggle must have appeared in some other films yeah but no no he was cut out of Glengarry Glen Ross yeah, and it all went downhill for him after that, that amazing scene in Goodfellas where he was like <laughs> arguing you know, and he oh, just see, got cut out, and then he got shot. I, and <laughs> yeah, now I want him to be like, get your shine box. Now I want that. Oh, that's not going to happen for all. But it, and yes, we will we will pursue further in any way we can the uh, the question of whether or not J.K. Rowling stole Hogwarts from a yeah. mispronunciation of Hoggle's name because I just jumped back when I heard that. Really, I think I I think I did hear it as well. I want it to be true. Yeah. Even if it isn't, it Hogwarts. should be. Hogwarts. Yeah, why not? And the, and just the strange pleasure of all those arch line readings of of different you know, malapropisms or, or uh, mm. Mondegreens, I guess, for his name. It's it's such a strange film, and it keeps revealing new strange things. Yeah, thirty years down the line. Yeah, that I love that sculpture of Bowie's face that when they walk past the in it, perspective thing. Yeah, yeah, and uh, trying to remember where I saw something like that. And, it is, yeah. and when is that? inspired by labyrinth <laughs> it's certainly possible i mean it's been around long enough that as you say it's like it's permeated into people's cultural creative dna i mean there's so many bits in it which i think have been you know have been repeated in other films i was thinking about those those rocks that warn people and mm-hmm. go oh please let me say it i haven't said it for such a long time oh and the helping hands 
I mean, all of these things that, as you say, the, the narrative is really meandering. It's kind of picaresque. It's just episodic, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. like she meets various different creatures. But at the time, I didn't question it at all as a child. And all of those things like the helping hands really stuck in my mind. And I think visually are really incredible. It's, I, you know, I often have this debate when I'm talking about... When, when I was about 17, I did a, an A-level in general studies which basically is like a free a level that you get where you don't really study for it but it's just like you can take the paper and it's just testing you to see how stupid you are or how clever you are or whatever but one of the things you had to do was write an essay and i wrote an essay about cgi versus in-camera effects and i talked about jurassic park versus um Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula (laughs) which I absolutely loved and I still love it now but I'm just more aware of how hilarious parts of it are now (laughs) but I still think it's brilliant um but you know someone like Ray Harryhausen who I also absolutely love all his work and when I was a kid I didn't even know who he was I just knew that there was certain animation in certain films that I really really loved Mm. and yeah, there's a flavour to his stuff that just isn't yeah, present. an artistry. I mean, it's like what we were saying of like, you know, who are the artists of CGI? Who are the Jim Hensons of CGI? They must exist, but mm, whether just, they're being championed in the way that they should be, I, I don't know. Yeah, we don't know them because that would break the illusion that anything is possible. You still need one guy to do it or one woman <laughs> at the keyboard to do it. Yeah, and that would probably work against the concept. Yeah, of... and they they might have too much power then if the, if you you know you realise that someone person CGI was that much more effective and amazing and imaginative and like a piece of art than someone else, then mm-hmm. you know the studios might actually start to need them instead of going well we could get someone else yeah. to do it we could just outsource this to anyone really, um, which happens anyway. Mm, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I don't really know how much about that world but you know I know that the stuff that I've done partly because I've got no budget but I I do really like the in-camera ethos I kind of the film that I've just shot we did pretty much everything in camera with no money Mm. you know but sometimes I think the effects that are produced and I argued this in my essay that I did when I was 17 is that um, when there's a human touch to it it's just much more compelling to watch on screen um you know, like the puppets in Alien, the the, the strangeness, the uncanniness yeah. is something that's created by there being a human involvement behind the mechanics of it, which gives it a spontaneity and makes it more interesting, I think. Mm-hmm. And on some base level, I think we read the actors knowing that there's something there. Mm. Uh, Sam uh, Worthington has this thing that he learned on Avatar. Uh, Louis Leterrier told me this about Clash of the Titans, that they were going to do a lot of digital monsters. Mm. And Worthington said, look, I need a head. I need Mm. an arm. I need a fist. I need something to touch in order to play. And you can make it green and paint it out, and it doesn't matter. I just need to see something. I need to feel something. And Leterrier said, yeah, you know what? He was absolutely right. It didn't cost anything. It wasn't a golf ball on a stick. We we, we built statue heads and things that he could look at. But his body tenses up and his arms move a certain way, his muscles group, and you believe it when you see it. You believe mm. that there is a griffin or medusa or whatever it is, is, is actually happening. Yeah. I mean, it's like when you do theatre. I, I love theatre and I don't do it very much, but I sort of started out in um, physical theatre 
and um, doing sort of devised physical theatre shows, very much influenced by Robert Lepage and, oh, yeah. and Complicité and all these theatre companies. Um, and, you know, the idea would be that you know, you'd get a dustbin or something and pretend that it's an astronaut's space lock, you know, right. airlock on, a, on an aeroplane or something. And, you know, part of the joy of that is projecting yourself to the point where you do believe that it's an airlock on a spaceship and that's some of the joy of it but you do need that dustbin <laughs> yeah. to be there yeah no, I know what you, you know mean. whereas when it's absolutely nothing you're just that's mine then which you feel sort of faintly ridiculous yeah, doing it's, it's beneath us <laughs> well also when it's on camera you're sort of like really you really want to test my mime skills to this point it's always the thing that i have like this dilemma in auditions where you might audition for something quite big you know a big film and in in the script it says she leans over and kisses him then puts the gun to his head and you're like do you want me to do this <laughs> do you want me to mime this it's always a bit of a conflict and it's yeah. you feel like you know what would De Niro do would he just mime it would he mime sticking his tongue in a woman's mouth and then putting a gun to her head or something no one teaches you this stuff I don't know I didn't go to drama school so maybe they do teach you that stuff in drama school but I'm always like ah it's so agonising I think if you're an amazingly confident actor they would they would just mime it they'd just and they'd carry it off and I've got a lot of admiration for those types of actors but that is essentially I mean I also think it's the boredom involved like when you're shooting something that's so huge and epic that you're just getting a tiny few amounts of seconds in a day and it's all green screen like you know Peter Jackson was talking about doing um, the Hobbit trilogy and sort of saying we're making up as we go along and you look at you know where the actors are actually acting just a big green room with maybe a couple of pillars made out of polystyrene or something and you kind of go and and they're probably getting a tiny bit of footage every day and i just think the boredom might set in it's not just well look at the star wars prequels i mean those were shot the same way and you can tell the actors are just exhausted and and, Mm. and yeah spent a week in a green room going and when are we going to do that bit where i have to (laughs) you know okay we'll do it when do i get to act when do i get to do something i mean i i was working with um Martin Freeman on, on a film ages ago and I was like gosh you know I'm not used to working on films with this budget it wasn't a massive budget film but it was bigger than I was used to and I was like you know the waiting around it's you know it's really different to low budget you know the joy of low budget is that you sometimes you only get one take mm-hmm. and it's much more like a bit of theatre it's like ah you got to do it more often than not you get it right and you give something a little bit more than you even thought you were going to give because you only get that one chance yeah you're not holding anything back yeah exactly and you're you're thinking well I've, I've got to make a fool of myself this is my only chance I've just got to go for it like wow I did something I wasn't expecting there and mm. that's on camera and he was like um, I said oh was, was it like this on The Hobbit and he said it was much slower than this on The Hobbit <laughs> I was like, really? I don't know if I could be an actor on big budget stuff. Mm. I don't. It sounds I mean. absolutely terrifying. I mean, mm. there's a, there's a, I guess there's a sort of a, a, a sense of safety in knowing that you can do you can do it again or you can fix it in post. Um, but maybe that's bad safety. I think so. It might be bad safety. Yeah, I think it means <laughs> you never really <laughs> fully commit, or, yeah. or you know you don't have to. You some part of you holds back. Uh, I, I mean, not to not that 
digital effects are, are always bad. I, I was thinking of um, Simon Pegg told me that the, the most fun he had in the volume, mm. uh, the most fun he had working in motion capture was making Tintin mm. with Spielberg because, oh, really? yeah, he and Frost were just bouncing, literally bouncing off of each other wearing yeah. these purple suits and just <laughs> enjoying themselves in a big empty room and you could do whatever you wanted. Yeah. But also he knew they were also the supporting characters and so they didn't need to be the center they could they could they just could play do what they liked yeah, yeah they were allowed yeah and the absolute nothingness was liberating because they would you know if well, there was something in the way it would be removed yeah maybe it's when it's half halfway when you're sort of constricted halfway by going there is a giant ape in front of you <laughs> and you're on a really tall tower so you can only move this amount and you can only do this but do whatever you like within that. Yeah, yeah. No <laughs> restrictions. That's, that's restrictions the create thing that art. Makes it harder. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it. it terrifies me the thought of, of doing all that stuff. But you know, one day I might have to do it. So. <laughs> well, you've got friends you can ask questions about. You'll be. <laughs> yeah. You can. You have resources. Yeah. Available exactly. to you. Uh, and then the final question of the of the show is always the same, which is, and I think you've, we've touched on it a little bit because that's starting to happen more and more now when I do these. Um, what is what of Labyrinth have you personally absorbed or lifted or quoted or just outright stolen? Is there anything that in your work that reaches to it? Um, well, uh, there's a journalist friend of mine um, who wrote a very brilliant article about the effects of Labyrinth on her and on her psyche. Her name's Sophie Mayer. Oh, I'll have to find it. Um, she wrote a brilliant article about um, you know as we were saying like it can be quite a bad role model if you happen to fall in love with Jareth the Goblin King you might be searching for that person for the rest of your life and having really disastrous relationships with men with really dodgy mullets and (laughs) sort of commitment issues and who live in a fantasy world so that's a disaster but there is a line at the end which is you have no power over me which is the text that she's reading from at the beginning which is called the labyrinth and then she realizes the true power of those words she never really understood them at the beginning by the end she understands them and that line i think is really interesting and and my journalist friend wrote it as sort of a female empowerment line and and it's true because i have thought that myself in the past when i've worked with people that i felt like I I think, especially working in comedy, the era that I was working in comedy, which was a time, you know, sort of nearly 20 years ago now, where there weren't that many women in comedy in the British comedy scene. And so I felt like I was in a world where I was like like more often than not the only woman in the immediate environment that I was working in. And it made, quite often, because I didn't start out in comedy, I would feel like I didn't know what I was doing. And that people around me would quite often be saying, no, that's wrong, that's not how you do it, no, you can't do this, you can't do that, no, that won't work, blah, 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 all this stuff. And and it took me a long, long time to sort of realise that my ideas had validity, that it was okay to call myself a writer, that it was okay to want to write stuff or have control over stuff. It, it was like, you know, when I started making stuff, the people who told me that my ideas were bad would be coming to me going, that was quite good what you did. Right. And I'd be realising, oh my God, I could have been doing this stuff years ago, but you made me feel like it was rubbish. So I never did it. And just that line, you have no power over me, is something that I kind of go, oh yeah, this this point at which you realise that people don't have to have power over you, that you've sort of allowed them to have power over you and you've been waiting 
for some sort of permission to be allowed to do creatively what you want to do and then you realise nobody else to give me permission I can actually do whatever I want and I think that line you have no power over me has got quite a lot of power to it I think it's that's something that I've taken from it I wonder if people are getting it tattooed now <laughs> it's, a, it's a great it's a great mantra within a crystal with oh, Bowie right. holding it that oh, would be amazing no. yeah it is a great mantra and I think a lot of the films that I'm writing or that I would like to write have a similar arc as I was saying like someone who has dreams of fantasy and they are destroyed by reality I think a lot of my stuff echoes those that theme mm. so it's the creator pushing back yeah, I mean, you, get to, or, or, you get to have the, the the validation of watching someone aspire and fail because you've actually triumphed <laughs> by making the story yeah I guess so I hadn't really thought of it in that way <laughs> I have um script editor that I worked with said to me that all of your stories are about empowerment which I thought was really interesting because it's that sort of transformation thing but I think that's also why I love Bowie so much and that so many people do but you know this power to be whatever it is you want to be and that you're you can do what you want you know it's part of the reason why I directed my film is sort of like why the hell not why shouldn't I want to be in control of every aspect of what I do creatively there's so many people that would tell you like oh are you sure you can do that can you cope with it or you know are you being sort of creatively monopolizing <laughs> you know don't you need other people helping you to make it good or whatever and I think that yeah he is someone that made you feel like you could achieve your dreams you could do what you wanted and that's sort of what that happens in Labyrinth as well. She sort of achieves her dreams and then throws them away, <laughs> bizarrely, and goes and gets a job as an accountant, maybe, we can only presume. I kind of um, want, yeah. <laughs> See, now I want the sequel. I want, I want to follow her home. Mm. I mean, she works in a regular job and she's boring and she goes home and all of the creatures are still there. <laughs> and she really wishes they would go because she wants a relationship <laughs> and she just lives with loads of Muppets. I mean, it's kind of Drop Dead Fred, though, isn't it? Which a little is another bit, really yeah. interesting film about growing up and adulthood and I think a lot of my films are about growing up as well even though I'm like God, I'm getting a bit old to tell that story but maybe yeah. not our generation no, I think they really evergreen. struggle yeah. they struggle to grow up I'm told 50 is the new 35 and I'm clinging to it <laughs> oh I like the sound of that that's great that makes me about 21 I think yeah. <laughs> I've got ages it's fine got ages to go <laughs> My thanks to Alice Lowe, who will be in Toronto for the North American premiere of Prevenge on Monday, September 12th at 7.15pm at the Hot Dog Cinema. There are two other screenings scheduled at TIFF, Wednesday, September 14th at 9.15pm and Saturday, September 17th at 6.15pm, both at the Scotiabank 8. If you're in town, check one of those out. The movie is creepy and funny and, and weirdly English in just the right way. You can keep an eye out for Prevenge by following Alice on Twitter at Alice Lowe, all one word, and you can find Labyrinth on DVD and Blu-ray from Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. In fact, there's a 30th anniversary remastered edition arriving on Blu-ray and 4K Blu-ray later this month with new special features, but it's also available for sale and rental right now, and you can find it on iTunes and Google Play. Come on, though. You want this on your shelf. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. This week's call sign is, I Moved the Stars for No One. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.
Where'd you just too darn loud? 